Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Dr. Randy Patterson. Uh, He's the Clinic Director of Changeways, and we're going to talk about uh, his work. Uh, he has a, a topic called how to be miserable in your twenties, which kind of a funny topic, but, uh, that's what we'll go with. So Randy, thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah. You do have a little bit of a baby face, but you're not in your twenties, far as I can tell. But, uh, why, why write this book about, um, people being miserable in their twenties and what to do about it? Well, for, you know, I've been doing psychotherapy for over 30 years now. I think it's 37 years uh, when last I checked. And so, yes, I'm not, uh, I'm not in my 20s. And for much of that time, I've noticed a, a subset of my population is young people, predominantly males, who are having difficulty achieving adult independence. And so this is the population that people are often referred to as failure to launch, or in Japan, the term is hikikomori, or in UK, it's NEAT, not in education, employment, or training. And I see a number of other people in their uh, 20s who are not having this particular problem, but are having some difficulty sort of adjusting to some of the, the profound changes that occur in people's lives as they uh, leave home um, and and enter adult life. So it's been a, a, an area of great interest to me. Well, what are some of the major uh, life events that people have to deal with that maybe they're not thinking of in this moment that could cause people trouble? Well, uh, one is, of course, leaving home and having the skills to be able to do that. How do you make food for yourself? How do you do your own laundry? How do you clean up your own place? How are you financially responsible enough to retain the amount of money you need for rent at the end of each month. So that's one. 
finding employment and and how do you do that in a world that tells you that good employment is being the head of a tech company that's making $500 million a year, probably not attainable for most people. So there's a, a wide variety of challenges at this time that get in people's way. What age does this start to manifest? Is it 18 and over? Or is it uh, is this like a cohort of people that are like in their mid-20s and they've kind of put off this stuff by living at home and now they want to leave? Like, what does the group look like? The, we tend not to think of it as, you know, failure to launch or what I prefer to call it delayed transition to adulthood because it is a delay. It's not a failure. It's not, you know, game over. We tend not to think of it until, you know, 18, 19, 20, because we don't really expect 18 year olds to be fully employed out of the house fully capable, that kind of thing. However, if we are talking to these people, what it turns out is that there's been a history of challenges with uh, independence long before the age of 20. So these are often anxious kids, kids who have school refusal problems, and often kids who have been subjected to bullying and so on. But when we're thinking about the population, generally, yeah, 18 and up through the 20s, Sometimes through the 30s, I have seen people in their mid-40s. Again, what happens? Kid is, what, 18, 19, 20, or 21, 22? Like, when does this start to become apparent, both to the parent and the kid, that, you know, they're not moving on, they're not progressing? Yeah, well, everybody has different ideas about what's normal. You know, is it normal for an 18-year-old to go off, find their own apartment, be fully employed or full-time in in university or whatever? A lot of parents would say, nah, it seems a little early to me. I don't know. Often the parent has, you know, one idea and the young adult has another idea. But generally speaking, it's, you know, the person is into their 20s, the most common scenario, and they're not in, in work. So they're not employed or they're grossly underemployed, given either their talents or their intelligence. And they're not in educational settings either. Uh, so this is not somebody who's going to university. You know, kid is going to university. They're staying at home to save money with mom and dad. Fine, whatever. But uh, they're not, in, not employed, not in training uh, for anything. And really not much is going on in their lives. Typically, almost uniformly, there's not much going on socially either. They're not, they're not, you know, saving up money and going out partying with their friends all day. Uh, That's not occurring. They're typically in the basement online. And that's about it. There's really not much going on in the person's life. Maybe they're gaming 40, 50 hours a week, that kind of thing. Well, between uh, men and women, what are the differences in this when they're in this state? Well, the interesting thing about this is that if you look at different cultures, it turns out that this is something that's been identified in cultures all over the world. And because there's no common terminology and because it doesn't appear in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, uh, these the literatures are pretty scanty to begin with, but they're pretty independent. So I see uh, people writing about Japan, for example, saying, why is this a quintessentially Japanese problem? And anybody who's looked at the cross-cultural literature is saying, it isn't, right? <laughs> you're, you're making it up. But what all cultures agree on is that this is a problem that's more common in males than females. 
you know, and it's hard to get a firm grasp on the numbers, but it's somewhere between 60 and 80% male. Why is that? Uh, short answer to that is nobody knows. The longer answer is gaming seems to be more attractive for males. Um, males tend to be more into pot, which pot in itself is not the, you know, satanic drug that we once thought, but, you know, people that are smoking up every, every morning, um, you know, sometimes having a bit of trouble getting themselves organized. And I think that young males are given some very unrealistic ideas about what adulthood should be. Uh, you know, you should be the vice president of a tech startup again, or, you know, you have to have this kind of a car and so on. And I think young women are really not raised with these ideas to quite the same extent. Where I've seen young women, it tends to be overprotective parents who are concerned about some of the, you know, admittedly terrible things that can happen to young women in their 20s. Uh, young males, it tends to be more almost seemingly self-generated, you know, that they find themselves drawn to activities which cause them to spiral in and not progress in other areas of their life. Does this worsen as time goes on? Do people kind of give up, you know, young people and say, well, this is my life now? And if so, when does that happen? Like, what are the stages of this uh, syndrome or activity, whatever you want to call it? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it does seem to get more entrenched with time. It's like any kind of habitual pattern, behavior, or lifestyle. The more you're in it, the more, the more easy it becomes for that to be the default thing that you do today and tomorrow and so on. It just becomes more and more automatic. Young people in this situation are often waiting for their passion to arrive. You know, they're thinking that someday something is going to spark me and I'm just going to like, take off like a rocket. Uh, there's that failure to launch metaphor coming in. But in fact, that tends not to occur. The longer they're stuck in, in, in a kind of stasis, uh, the longer it tends to last and the more intense it tends to get. The greater the anxiety is about getting out there, the more you feel that you've fallen behind your friends and peer group. So if you did get out there, they'll be going, what are you doing in that kind of a job? Why are you collecting shopping carts at the grocery store? You know, the rest of us are, you know, in law school or something like that. And so it'll be embarrassing and humiliating. So it does tend to get more entrenched as the person falls further and further behind their peer group. So what, I mean, what are some of the strategies uh, to help these people? Do they feel like they need help or is it the parents saying like, help get him out of the house. Like where, where does the request for help come from? 
Yes. I mean, very often the typical thing that we experience and that other clinicians dealing with the population experience is that it's the parents who call first saying, oh, my gosh, we've got a problem here. Just realized it. My son, my daughter, more often my son, 24 years old, not getting uh, not getting out, not doing anything. Uh, seems to be on the internet 24 hours a day, nocturnal uh, schedule and so on. So they often lay down the rules and they, they will often tell the young person, you've got to go seek help because this is, this just cannot go on. Occasionally the young person will take the initiative and say, I think I, I think I need some assistance here and we'll, we'll seek out help. More often it's the parents doing it. The problem with that is that the parents and the young adult are typically in a uh, an oppositional relationship. Like the parents are constantly nagging the kids, saying, oh, for God's sake, go get a job, go do this, go do this. And the young person, in order to maintain their autonomy, you know, so they're not just an obedient little child for mom and dad, what they're doing is uh, they're resisting. Right. The only way to retain your autonomy is to resist. So we wind up with a very strange dynamic with these individuals in that in order to be an independent person, they have to retain the lifestyle of an adolescent. And so the whole system kind of gets locked. The danger for a therapist walking in there is that we're the agent of the parents trying to control the young person even more. And so obviously the young person is going to resist us as well. And so it's a vital thing for the therapist to, you know, in effect, set the parents to one side or the parents wishes to one side and try to access what is it you want? Forget your parents. What do you want? What does a good life, good adult life look like for you? So that's the challenge. And again, it is the parents who are often uh, seeking help. Well, when you ask that question of someone in their early 20s, what's the typical answer or what are some interesting answers you've gotten? Well, some of the answers are things like, you know, I'd like to date. Most of these individuals are not dating. So they'd like to, you know, date is sort of a euphemism for the way some of them put it. But they'd like to have more friends. They'd like to be going out more. Some of them, you know, are familiar with people who are traveling. They'd like to be able to travel and they want money. You know, they, they realize the, the lifestyle they're leading is leading to impoverishment. They don't have the independence. They couldn't afford to do some of the things they'd want to do anyway. So the kind of standard things that you would expect, often there is an unrealistic quality to it. So I remember a, a, a young person saying to me, we we're trying to figure out what an early, good early first job would be, you know, sort of an entry level position. And he was thinking, you know, maybe I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but maybe, uh, you know, vice president of a, like a small tech startup, something like that. And this is an individual who hadn't finished his, his high school. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so rather than tramping on that dream, what I had to do is say, okay, well, let's, let's find out, find out like, what do those people do? What do they, what do they got? They got coding courses. Most of them have their high school. So let's take that and, and use that to map out a path toward it. And fortunately, what a lot of people want to do is go from zero to 60 in, in one step. And so it's a bit disillusioning to realize that stepping outside mom's house doesn't involve stepping into a corner office somewhere. And that's, that's more dispiriting than anything. 
So that's 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 a challenge uh, for a lot of them. So I don't know when you when you show them what it takes to get into a position like that, do they just fall into despair? Do they feel challenged by it? I mean, like you know, it seems like um, your role as a guidance counselor for post high schoolism, you know, in order to get people into the the workforce and all that, to transitioning to be an adult, it's like it seems like a role is missing there. Like again, a guidance counselor. In effect, yeah, a guidance counselor might be helpful in some cases. But I think the challenge is that it's not that these people don't know what's out there, what the options are. Uh, it's that they have, in many cases, unrealistic expectations set by the educational system and, and in fact, by guidance counselors in high school who have you know, made this point that you can be anything you want to be, which, frankly, was always a lie. It was never true. And it's going to take a lot of work to do these things. As well, in high school, we're teaching people that what you really need to be doing is pursuing your passions, which is great for the one in a hundred who actually have this burning desire to pick up a violin and, and work away at it for five hours a day. But in fact, is not something that the majority of young teens have. And so it often paralyzes them. So Often it's more motivational work and anxiety management work than inspirational work. Indeed, much of the work is de-inspirational. It's like, yeah, let's have those ideas about where you'd like to be and how much money you'd like to have and what kind of Lamborghini you, you, know, you would like to own. And let's think about entry level, which frankly is never going to be your passion, right? Wasn't mine, probably well, wasn't. How do you get people inspired to do something if they're, expectations are like through the moon, you know, and um, they're, they're really not even at step one. How do you manage this process and get them to come off their, you know, like super high expectation level? It's, that's a very difficult thing to do because it feels like you're, um, it feels to them like we're encouraging them to fail because to them working in a grocery store is failure. Working in a uh, an auto parts shop is failure. And so we're uh, encouraging them into that. And uh, it's it's very challenging. What's often made more challenging or what makes it more challenging is that the parents are unwittingly involved in the same model that what the young person needs to do is to find their passion, find this intrinsic internal drive and motivation that's actually not how most people get start their 20s. That's not how people start their adulthood. We start our adulthood out of need. You know, we get our first job because we want beer money. And so what, what's often happening within the family is that the parents are inadvertently taking away all of what I refer to as the adaptive motivation. The fact that I don't have money. I want to be able to travel. I guess I'm going to need to earn money to get it. You know, don't like uh, some aspects of my home environment, I would like to move out. It's this adaptive motivation that actually is what drives most of us into our adulthood. And it's often being systematically taken away in these families. So that's one of the challenges. Well, in a way, we have to distance ourselves from the parents. In a, in a way, we have to involve the parents because we have to, in effect, get them to stop parenting because they don't have a child. One of the well, real challenges with a lot of parents is convincing them you don't have any children. There are no children in this house. Well, what should the um, should the parents slowly say? Like, look, you know, 
in the next month or two, I need you to start paying a hundred bucks a month for rent and like slowly put the, the pressure on them to say like, you need to contribute to the house. You're an adult now. And then kind of let them figure out from there by adding that pressure. Or is that a bad idea? Well, in, it's not so much pressure. I mean, some of the pressure that they're doing is nagging. And virtually every family, the parents are saying, here's what you should be doing. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. You should be looking for jobs. Here's the website. You should be doing this and so on. And in effect, it's sort of taking over uh, for the young person. And a large part of what I want them to do is back off on the pressure, back off on the nagging and so on. But instead, change the contingencies a little bit. And exactly right. Rent. Yeah. Adults pay rent. And one of the things that I encourage people to do is imagine that, you know, your son or daughter had left home and you were, you know, making their spare room available for your cousin's kid who was in town for university. What would you expect? Uh, Do you expect money? Do you expect them to make their own food? Do you expect them to shop for their own food? Do you expect them to sometimes make meals for the family? What would your expectations be if this was not your child? And we're not necessarily going to go 100% of the way there, but we're certainly going to go part of it. Because often what's happening is the parents are treating this this young adult, this 25-year-old, like they're 10 and they're not. So we need to sort of de-parent a little bit. Well, I wonder what if you say, um, you know, if you get a job and work for every dollar you make, I'll, you know, I'll put away 20 cents for you or something like that. Or I'll match Absolutely. it or whatever it is so that you can, you know, you're showing effort, but it's not just you. And this will help get you over the hump, but at least you're contributing. Yes. The system that a lot of parents have is, oh, my kid is unemployed. So I'm giving him $500 a month. Uh, and, oh, if you get a job, then I take away the $500 a month. Well, you're putting your finger on the scale, but you're putting finger on the wrong side right? You're giving it a $500 a month disincentive to this, this person going off and getting a job. And in fact, that kind of incentive is exactly uh, the kind of thing that I would advocate in some families is, yeah, the young person is saying, yeah, but that, that job only makes me, you know, $14 a month or a month, $14 an hour. You know, it, uh, that's never going to get me where I want to be. You can subsidize. You know, you can say, you know what, I'll, I will, uh, you show me your, your paycheck and I will give you 25% more, or I will put this away for you. What some parents do is they charge rent and all that rent is not going into general revenues. It's going into something that will go for the young person. It goes to their educational fund or uh, down payment fund or something like that. But it is a responsibility of the young person to contribute both financially, but also in terms of effort. A lot of these families, a lot of these homes, uh, the young person, they don't mow the lawn. They don't paint the bathroom. They don't clean up. They don't um, scrub the toilets. They don't do the dishes. They don't do any of this stuff. And in reality, they don't have parents. They've got staff. It's like Downton Abbey in some of these homes. What I probably know the answer, but at what age should you start shifting some of the responsibility onto your child 15 16 Five. 18 one's good five uh, you know by the time they come to see me i don't deal with small children but uh, uh, and here's this childless uh, person telling uh, telling you this but i really think that the function of parenting are there there's a dual function of parenting one is keep the kids safe and the other one is prepare them for your death 
those are the two main jobs of, of parenting. In other words, uh, nurture them and prepare them for independent life. And the way we do that is we gradually back up. To- toilet training is a part of this process, right? It's like, no, I'm not going to wipe your butt. Uh, no, we're not going to diaper you. You're going to use the potty and you're going to wipe your own butt. And then gradually it moves from there. I think what often happens in families is that people get to, you know, their their young adult is now 20. This is the first time they've ever thought of, oh, maybe he should know how to use the, the washing machine. I wonder if he if he should know how to make pasta, you know? It's mm. like, yeah, we're doing a lot of catch-up by then. So, I mean, what condition do you get these uh, non-adult adults in all over the board? And, you know, like, what are a few success stories? Like, what happened to cause the person to grow and become their own person? Like, what what's worked? You know, a few examples. One of the things that really works is exposure. Like if what, if you can get, what is it that you would actually want? Uh, you know, imagine that we could just give you some magic drug or spell or something like that to take away all the anxiety and all the potential humiliation. What would you want? And that envisioning is very helpful. Uh, but then often it's exposure work. Uh, it's getting yourself out there. It's leaving your comfort zone. The problem is that the home is the comfort zone. And the person is oriented to stick within it. The problem with the comfort zone is the longer you stay there, the smaller it gets. So example, young person bullied in high school, educated at home for the last year. That's the first modeling of avoidance on the part of the parents. Uh, You know, oh, we'll show you how to deal with this bullying. Uh, It's avoid the entire setting and avoid all your friends and avoid everything else. So we'll have you uh, educated at home. And then kind of got stuck there and never moved on, never got a job, never went to college or anything like that, but wanted to, thank goodness. But by that point, had mostly a nocturnal schedule. And so we were doing uh, walk therapy, like where the person would actually be walking outdoors during daylight. That's where we might start. Uh, At one point, they had a family member who they met up with every so often, and they would go to the same restaurant over and over and over and over and over again, because that was the comfortable place for this person. And I I suggested, could we make a rule that you never go to the same restaurant twice? So, you know, every time you go out, you have to go someplace slightly different, slightly different. Doesn't have to be terrifying. Has to be slightly different. Could be a different DQ, you know, or whatever. Uh, And then gradually we, we looked at the community college and said, well, let's not Let's not uh, register with the community college. Let's just walk through it. Let's just part, walk through it with your this family member. And then ultimately, once you get the family member to park the car and you walk through it on your own, and then we'll have them uh, buy food at the cafeteria and so on. Person actually wound up registering for classes because what happened gradually is that that community college became part of the comfort zone. They knew where the bathrooms mm. were. They knew where it was like. And so once it's in the comfort zone, then it's a little easier to do that one further step. I'm often recommending people, you know, like forget about registering for UBC, which is our closest university. Just walk through the campus. And is there any of the museums or gardens or anything that has even the faintest degree of interest? And frankly, if not, tough luck. Anyway, And then let's expose you to that. So it begins to feel like the university is my place. I've been there before. Mm. Right? Okay. I'm not out of place. That kind of that kind of work is very helpful. This person went through community college, transferred to 
uh, a university and uh, and wound up going through university. So that was that was a, a great success. What about a different Other, path where the person goes to work? What's an example of a successful uh, transition there? Yeah. Um, well, one was trying to um, identify what it is that the person wanted to do. And it was something quite technical uh, profession that would involve multiple, multiple steps to, to get to uh, and probably several years. And then they would be looking for a job really in order to fund that training. They needed to get a job right away. They weren't from a particularly wealthy family. And so we needed to do some work around entry-level jobs are not a life sentence, right? What we absolutely do not want to do, what will be a failure for you is if we get you into a job and you stay there until you retire at 65, right? That's, we need to pledge. We are not going for that. We're going for a job that you want, that you, you will leave within one year, something like that. And so we could get ramped down from this very ambitious idea. And this was an individual who wound up working um, the ramp at, at the airport. Um, well, but by telling them is, that, you know, you're going to be here max one year and then we're moving on. Does that help them? Yeah, this is a step. Right? About it? Exactly. We're looking, we're, we're climbing a ladder here. The whole point of climbing a ladder is not to get onto the first rung and stay there forever. Like the first rung is irrelevant. What we need is for the first rung to be a, a, a step to the next one. This does not mean that everybody has to climb to the president of the company or, you know, some big powerful position. But it does mean that we need to emphasize the entry level job is not going to fulfill your passion. It's probably not going to be that thrilling. It will force you into being around other people, which is probably the main point in a lot of cases. And that's going to be quite helpful. Entry-level jobs do a vast amount for people, but they don't look like they're going to. So we don't try to convince them in advance. We just just want this um, job for a period of time just to get some income and something onto your vita. And since you're you're changing the expectations surrounding these things that they've heard of or they've been told, but are like big nebulous dark clouds or monsters that they're afraid of tackling. It all seems too overwhelming and big. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. We, we live in a culture that tells people that if you go into a swimming pool, you should get the gold medal for the butterfly in the Olympics. And, you know, you, you, you need to become this billionaire or, you know, $20 million a year influencer or something like that. And, that is paralyzing for people because they're intelligent, because they realize that ain't never going to happen. So why would I start? If that's the only outcome that we're going for, why would I start? So we need to get get rid of that and say, what if it was just about being in the pool long enough that you could climb back out if you fell in kayaking or something, right? That's it. That's well, all we're going for. Once we do that, well, well, then we can think about doing more. What are some of the reservations people have? Or is there no resistance if you break things down to a small enough level? Like, what do you observe they respond with when you propose these little bite-sized experiences? Typically, the feeling that people have is, that's not big enough. That's, you know, that's stupid. That's, that step is so small that I am going to die of old age before I actually get anywhere. 
So that's it, it's actually quite discouraging. Once you get it down to a level that's achievable, and this is true for people with clinical depression as well, once you get a task down to the level of it that's achievable, it feels stupid. It feels trivial. It feels even insulting to take it on, walk around the block one time after dark. That's not going to get me anywhere. So that's, that's typical. And so what we do is we empathize with that and say, you're absolutely right. It is stupid, isn't it? It is like, it's ridiculous. Is this where you want to be? Oh, I have to get myself so I could walk around the block one time. No, this is not what you want. That's why we're not going to be satisfied with that. We're not going to stop there. This is only a starting point. But, you know, if you're going around thinking this is, this is too weenie, uh, that's fine. That's fine. That's allowed. Let that feeling in. Let that feeling of dissatisfaction in. And if you feel angry about it, good, good. Be angry. The anger will drive you further. Okay. Yeah. So they need to accept it. Um, but do you tell them like, okay, the first step may seem painfully slow and small, but as you go and you get momentum, you're going to have bigger steps and bigger leaps and it will be satisfying and it will be thrilling and it will be accomplishment. Do you also future pace it and tell them that? Uh, it, it, uh, we, I do tell them that it w- we will be going towards bigger steps. I have a slightly juvenile metaphor that can always pops into my mind. And I keep thinking I should come up with something a little bit more adult. But if you're a train in a station and the next station is 60 miles away and you want to get moving and you've got to be there in two hours, first you go to go, you have to go one mile an hour, right? We just have to get the wheels to turn once, right? And that's idiotic because that's not getting you very close to that next station at all. But that needs to happen once in order for you to begin speeding up, begin speeding up. Most of the journey will be once you're at 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 top speed, but we have to satisfy ourselves with being very slow initially. So that strategy of letting go, yes. What I try not to do is talk about how thrilling the steps ultimately will be. Because I think in most people's lives, most of their steps are not thrilling. And so if we're if we're promising that, we may be buying into some of what our culture tells us in inspirational videos and and uh, wellness workshops and things like that, which is actually more damaging than anything. Yeah, I see what you mean. So, you know, as you go through the journey, I have to be reminded or you have to be reminded or everyone does, I guess, of like, look at how far you've come. You know, you started mm-hmm. out with this and like, you know, so are there milestones or there steps where you offer that encouragement and a review? Say, look, look, Joey or Susie, you know, look, look where we were six months ago. You've done all this. Keep it going. Here's what's next. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and constantly. And the first milestone is where they were when they came in. So, yeah, we're constantly saying, yeah, like just, they're coming in and they might be saying, oh, yeah. So I walked. I'm in Vancouver. Uh, yeah, I walked around the seawall. And uh, my gosh, I mean, anybody can do that. That's idiotic and stupid. And and it just just shows how completely disabled I am. Uh, Yeah. Okay. And yet, when was the last time you walked around Stanley Park? Like, oh, we're on that seawall. So it's been 14 years. Times around the seawall, zero. This week, time around the seawall, once. So I'm constantly doing that. What these individuals like most depressed individuals are constantly doing is they're looking forward to the future and they're thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much distance I have yet to cover. And I'm constantly encouraging them, turn around, turn around, look where you were, look where you were, look where you were, and look at the distance now. You haven't been in a pool in 10 years. Now you've been in a pool twice, all of a sudden. 
So what, what kind of responses do you get when you point this out? Sometimes you get a fair bit of uh, of inspiration. Sometimes you get a little bit of lip service, like, yeah, well, yeah, big deal. You know, I've been in a pool twice, practically drowned. Yeah, what, uh, like, big deal. But you get, I think, some sort of grudging acceptance of the fact that there is some movement happening. And if you can, you know, when, really... When do you notice the, the lights turn on? When do you notice the spark hit? You know, when do you yeah. know that you're over the hump with that person? It takes a while. You know, there are some treatments, for example, when you're treating panic disorder from a cognitive behavioral perspective, you expect to get, you know, great strides within 10 sessions. Uh, and sometimes you get great strides within three. These individuals, not so much. It's a much more gradual process. And it's like months down the road, typically, where a person begins feeling like, okay, okay, I see you. Yeah, yeah, we're still not where I want it to be. Thank you very much. But but we are getting somewhere. Uh, so you do see it eventually. But the person begins to see that, you know, they're capable of some things. But often you, they're so focused on what they lack that you have to continually remind them of the fact that, you know, two months ago, you couldn't do this. You're, you're doing it. Yeah. Now you're doing it. You're discovering you have more capabilities than you thought you did. And maybe when you have that thought, I don't have that capability, maybe you need to be a little suspicious because it turns out you're not the greatest judge of yourself. How long do you tend to work with people like on average? And, um, you know, again, what are some of the cool milestones that you observe over and over when successful? One of the, uh, well, it varies a great deal with most disorders that I see in clinical practice. We see them for, you know, somewhere between five and, and 15 sessions. Typically with these individuals, it's typically more than 30, often spaced. So over a year, uh, it takes a long while. And I wish I had a way of speeding it up, but I don't seem to. And I keep consulting with others. So they don't seem to either. It's a, it's a long process because we're building an adulthood that has never been there before, creating that. Or yeah, but if someone's uh, 23 and they're, yeah. you know, three to five years beyond their normal welcome. I mean, one year mm-hmm. of work doesn't seem too much. No, and it does get them somewhere. Usually, see, once you get, you know, it's a little bit like cranking a lawnmower. You know, if you've got one of those hand crank lawnmowers, you just think, oh, this is exhausting. It's exhausting. But eventually it catches and then it runs itself. And it's much like that, that once a person begins making some steps, they will come back and say, oh, yeah, and I did this. And it won't occur to them that this is significant, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I I, I did the bus like you were ta- talking to me about. Okay. So I rode my five stops to someplace I didn't even want to be, right? And then I walked home feeling like an idiot. Anyway, so then I went to the shopping mall. And you're like, what? Wait, what? Huh? Hang on. What? Uh, we didn't talk anything about the shopping mall. Stuff begins happening by itself. And that's when you you begin realizing Oh, something's going on here. What do you mean you went camping? You went camping? You? Things are happening without a plan. And that's often a great sign. So things like uh, I'm dating. I met this young man, woman, whatever. I applied for four jobs. Wait a minute. The plan was apply for one that you didn't actually want to get, right? That was the plan. What do you mean you applied for four? They get a job which disproves the idea that nobody will ever hire you under any circumstances. So these kinds of things gradually begin to accrue. 
in the person's life and gives them a sense of momentum, especially when the therapist points them out and reminds them that was not the plan. We didn't think we would be here by now. So that's it. Very helpful. I think it was a tremendous move for this young man who got a job at the airport. Unbelievable. He didn't, he didn't think he would ever be employed. Part of what, you know, his great ambitions had to do with the fact that because it's not real, the fantasy has to be bigger than the reality, right? In order to charge himself up, he needed a really big fantasy because it wasn't actually real. He wasn't that imaginative, you know, like you can't convince yourself that this is true. You actually get a real job that is much more modest in scope because it's real, it's more powerful. And so that's when people begin realizing, oh, wait a minute, I can actually do stuff. I actually finished a course. What do you know? So, that's so is there something come. that uh, that your patients say where you go, yes, you know, maybe you don't tell them, like, is there a moment where you know that they've graduated, essentially? Graduated is is tricky. Uh, typically, they will uh, come up with that, and or we will taper our sessions, and then eventually say, you know, you're you're oh, you're going to University of Montreal. That's wonderful. Congratulate. Let's do a last session or two, and and uh, uh, and tail this off. Or you have a sense that why don't we give it a couple of months, and then and then we'll meet again. So that kind of it tends to be that sort of gradual tapering effect. What I am really looking for are those instances where the person comes through the door and says, oh, I did this. I know this isn't really our topic, but I did this, you know, referencing back, oh, I went camping with friends, or I, I, I did this. Those kinds of things that are happening without planning, that really tells me that something is happening here. You know, the lawnmower has caught and is starting to run itself. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, do you have like alumni, I guess I'm just calling them that, that come back to you years later for other issues or to say thank you or, you know, do you have patients? Yes. That, you know, what happens there? Yeah. Uh, I think of a, a young man that I saw a while ago who writes me every so often from uh, university where he appears to be doing very, very well. Actually, I think his last one was about having graduated and, and is now in a business as, you know, in a successful position. So that that kind of thing, people do write back. I've always thought, never done it, but I've always thought that it'd be lovely to get them in as co-therapists, you know, and have groups, never been able to run a group with these guys. But if I could run a group, I think that'd be lovely. And bringing in alumni, you know, there's always these confidentiality concerns and so on. But if you could do that, I think it'd be very inspiring for people. So that oh, kind so of, are you, that kind are you, of thing. Are you- are you trying to make like a big brother, big sister program where they come back to help the alumni? I'm not trying to do that. I would love to do that. I don't think it's ever going to happen because often they scatter across the country. But what I would like actually is the opportunity to pair people up because one of them is terrified of transit and the other one can't go to social events or can't go to movies and so on. And so you can pair them up that way. So not so much a mentorship idea, but a peer support idea, I think would be very helpful, but I can't say that it is because I haven't actually pulled it together to, <laughs> to do that, but I would love to. Well, what, what are your books about? What are the focus of those? Is, is it exactly what we've been talking about or what do they cover? Much of it? Yes. Well, 
where a lot of my work comes from is from years ago when I was the director of a prevention of rehospitalization program for people who've been hospitalized with major depression, like very severe depression, about two thirds that had a fairly significant suicide attempt that precipitated their inpatient admission. They get discharged and the, the unit that we were working with realized they had about a 30% readmit rate within six months, so about three out of 10 back in to hospital again uh, within six months. That was too high. And so our plan was to train them in some self-management skills, goal setting, sleep hygiene, exercise, that kind of thing, and prevent them from coming back to hospital and ideally uh, improve in their state. Because nobody is discharged from hospital from clinical depression without clinical depression. They still have it at that point. Inpatient stay for depression is not really curative. So that was the plan. And I started doing something. I, I thought, oh my gosh, these people have been through so much. If I say, oh my gosh, cognitive behavior therapy is so wonderful. It's going to fix you right up. I was going to get shot down in a big hurry. And so I started saying, what if for some bizarre reason, let's imagine 10 million bucks, you get 10 million bucks. If next Thursday you can be more depressed than you are now, what would you do? What are some of the things that might help you become worse? Because you yeah. have all been trying to get better. You know, you've all been trying to get better and, and you're frustrated by how, you know, uh, how difficult that is. Let's try something easier. Let's try and get worse. What would, what would we do? People would come up with all kinds of things. And then I could ask, how many of these things are you already doing? And then shocked silence overtakes the room where people realize, wait a minute, I am living my life right now as if it was my mission to feel worse. It isn't. I'm That's not deliberately making myself, but I what, am. What are, what are some, uh, what, yeah, what are some critical behaviors that, uh, will, you know, that people are doing and they don't even know they're doing that. It'll make them worse. Well, I'll give you the ones that other people say, because I do public talks on this and I hand out papers and I say, before we do anything, write in three things. What would you do to win the 10 million bucks? And so general population, I would not exercise. I would randomize my sleep schedule. So I was, you know, maybe nocturnal schedule or maybe random, like, you know, one night, 7 p.m., next night, three in the morning, whatever. Good strategy, by the way, to make yourself feel worse. Uh, eat crap food, maximize my screen time, surf randomly on the internet, you know, as much of the time of the uh, as I possibly can, review all of my failings in life. You know, anytime I sit down and I have a moment to myself, really think, okay, what have I failed at? What, you know, what have I not done? Not do any of the things that are important to me. So know what my values are, but not put that into behavior in any way and isolate myself socially. Lousy exercise, lousy sleep, and no socialization are almost always the top three. But people have an infinite variety. It sounds yeah. like the, CD, the CDC, uh, you know, took your suggestion seriously even in terms of recommendations <laughs> over the past 18 months. But yeah, just joking. Well, out of that came, you know, ultimately, after many years, uh, came my book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. And then that became quite successful. And a guy contacted me at one point and said, oh, I want to, you know, take a couple of the ideas and put them on the web on a YouTube thing. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, well, sure, whatever, go go for it. But uh, mention the book at least, you know, and I didn't think anything more of it. But then I noticed the sales of the book suddenly shot through the roof. Turns out the guy was CGP Gray, who is, you know, one of, one of the most popular YouTubers out there. He'd done this video with millions of people. 
saw this thing and then they realized most of these young people are uh, most of the people viewing this thing are quite young. So how would you like to do a sequel? How to be miserable in your 20s, 40 strategies to fail at adulting. And that's where the second book. What about, um, you know, you, you, we talked a bit about a big brother, big sister program. You don't think it's going to happen. But what about you interviewing your successful patients that have moved on and made a life for themselves and then making that into a book, you know, actual stories from people that have gone from, you know, despair to success? You know, it's it's a a good idea, and there are people out there writing books on failure to launch and uh, incorporating the stories from their clinical practice. Um, it's it would be great to have a sort of a compilation of first person stories about yeah, I was in this situation, and here's what how I came out of it. I've got so many book projects on the go at the moment that uh, I suspect I'm probably not the author of. Lately, I've been doing a, the second edition of the Assertiveness Workbook. So that's my uh, my current obsession. Uh, and then there are no, a couple other great. projects lined up behind that. Yeah, you know, Randy, it's great. I, I really appreciate what you do, even though I haven't used your services. But um, I think it's like a huge help. <laughs> I, mean, I would say just as a regular, well, I have teenage kids, um, so I'm not there yet. But I would guess that a lot of lay people think of um, someone that's 23 or 25 at home as like, oh, they're a loser and, you know, what the hell is wrong with people their age and, you know, what's wrong with 20-somethings, you know, et cetera. But you're providing help and insight. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and discussing all this stuff and shedding light. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, what's, so what's the best way for people to engage with you, whether they're a concerned parent listening or they're, you know, 18, 20, 23, 25, whatever, and they're experiencing some of these difficulties, like, what do you recommend for engagement with you? Well, a couple of things. I mean, you know, there are, of course, my books, uh, the How to Be Miserable books. My website is randypatterson.com. My last name just has one T in it. So P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N. But also, I've, I, I, I realized that I wanted to get more stuff out there, just sort of just out there in the general field, I suppose. And so I'm possibly the world's oldest YouTuber and started a YouTube channel called How to Be Miserable. And uh, a new video goes up on that every single week. And about half of them are on the How to Be Miserable topic. Others are on symptoms of depression, uh, how we deal with anxiety disorders, that kind of thing. And so there's an enormous amount of content up there now. There is also, um, for people experiencing clinical depression, a number of years ago, I was involved with a colleague of mine, Dan Bilsker, for something called the Antidepressant Skills Workbook. And that's available for free download in English, in Chinese, in Vietnamese, in French, in Spanish, in several other languages as well. And that's available at uh, psychhealthandsafety.org. So people can download that for free. It was designed as a thing to help people who are depressed and seeing their physicians. So it was basically originally a, a thing that physicians would say, hey, go to this website, get this thing, and then we'll talk about it. So it's not a substitute for care, but it is a way of getting some of the basics of cognitive behavior therapy for depression. So those are some of the ways that people can get uh, you know, more content and uh, engage. Okay, well, very good. Well, Randy, again, thank you for what you do and thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.